This week's episode of the Nerdist Writers Panel is brought to you by T-Fury. T-Fury is the original pop culture t-shirt destination, selling unique designs every day since 2008. You can snag their shirts for only 24 hours, starting at midnight each day. Missing a shirt from the past and want to get it again? Head to the T-Fury Gallery, where you can buy some old designs still in print and vote on others to come back from the dead. Every two to four weeks, T-Fury adds more designs to their gallery, so be sure to keep an eye out for the return of your favorite shirts. But you should really just buy them the first time around. So visit T-Fury every day and then get a shirt because it's gone after 24 hours. T-Fury shirts cover all of your favorite topics and fandoms. They've got everything from gaming, sci-fi, anime, TV, movies, pop culture, and more. Their t-shirts change daily, so check back as often as you'd like. Daily. Also, don't forget about the T-Fury After Hours sale. If you miss the day's shirt by only a little, they keep the sale going into the wee hours of the morning just for you. Check out tfury.com slash nerdist and see what today's shirt is all about. Now entering Nerdist.com. Welcome to the Nerdist Writers Panel. This is Ben Blacker, the creator and moderator of the Nerdist Writers Panel. Thanks for listening. Follow me on Twitter, at Ben Blacker, just like it sounds. Uh, I myself am a TV writer. I've written for the shows Supernatural, Super Ninjas, and I'm currently working on a DreamWorks animated program, which I will tell you more about when I'm allowed to, but it's a lot of fun. I'm also the co-creator of the Thrilling Adventure Hour, a stage program in the style of old-time radio, available as a podcast on the Nerdist Network, monthly at Largo, and touring all over the country uh, in 2014. Find out more at thrillingadventurehour.com. I'm doing a live Nerdist Writers panel at the Emerald City Comic Con. Uh, It's on the Friday of the con, um, and it's going to be really cool. Um, We've got a great lineup. We have uh, Cullen Bunn, Matt Fraction, Kelly Sue DeConnick, and Greg Rucka. Um, and that is, it's on Friday, the 28th of March, uh, Emerald City Comic Con for badge holders. And if you are going to Emerald City in Seattle, uh, come out to see the great Thrilling Adventure Hour Welcome to Night Vale crossover. Uh, this is one big show. Thrilling Adventure Hour and Night Vale is written by me and Acker and by uh, Jeffrey and Joseph, the creators of Night Vale. It's on Saturday, March 29th in Seattle. Um, you don't need a badge to go buy tickets for the Moore Theater. If you go to our website, thrillingadventurehour.com, there's a link for tickets. Um, a bunch of the Work Juice players are coming up. Uh, Mark Evan Jackson, Mark Gagliardi, Craig Kakowski. Um, people you love, uh, plus some special guests are coming with us. Molly Quinn will be there, uh, Castle's Molly Quinn, uh, and renowned fangirl Molly Quinn. Uh, and I'm not saying Alan Tudyk will be in the show, but he's going to be at the, uh, he's going to be at the, the con. So, you know, he's a pal. You never know what's going to go on. Um, so come and check that out. That's Seattle on March 29th. Uh, and the Nerdist Writers panel is the day preceding, uh, at the con. Uh, join us for that. It's the Nerdist Writers Panel on the Nerdist Podcast Channel. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Yeah. A terrific panel today. You recognize all of our panelists' faces from your television and movie screens, but you may not know that they are all accomplished writers as well, and that's something we're going to talk about. Our first panelist is, uh, you know her as an actress from The Tick, where she played Captain Liberty. She's also been in Push Nevada, True Calling, 
and she's well known for her role as Wendy Sims in CSI, a show for which she also co-scripted an episode, the first uh, TV that she wrote. In recent years, she sold four pilots, um, including a bowling comedy to NBC and uh, another one just a couple days before we recorded this podcast. Uh, that's Liz Vassy. Secondly, the writer, producer, and star of the 2001 romantic comedy All Over the Guy, our second panelist has appeared as an actor in everything from NYPD Blue to Frasier and Will and & Grace, and he can be currently seen in Shonda Rhimes' hit Scandal. With his producing partner, Lisa Kudrow, he's been involved in HBO's The Comeback and uh, Who Do You Think You Are?, as well as being the co-creator of the Emmy-nominated Web Therapy. He's a real TV writer, uh, having scripted episodes of Lipstick, Jungle, and Grey's Anatomy, and an ABC pilot called Show and Tell, based upon his book, Does This Baby Make Me Look Straight? Uh, our second panelist is Dan Bukatinsky. And finally, as an actor, you know our last panelist from memorable turns in everything from Sports Night and The Commish to Will and & Grace and The West Wing and The New Adventures Volt Christine, and of course he currently stars in all of the Marvel movies and ABC's Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. as Agent Phil Coulson. Somewhere along the way, he wrote and sold several screenplays, including What Lies Beneath, which we will talk about, and directed a couple as well, which he wrote, including 2008's terrific adaptation, Choke, uh, and the new Trust Me, which is coming out this spring. Uh, I think it's coming out in May. Uh, this is Clark Gregg. Um, let's talk a little bit about your relationship to writing um, before you became writers or actors, for that matter. Um, you know, we, I think we all know each of you very well as actors, maybe to a lesser extent as writers, so we want to explore that. Um, Liz, let's start with you. What was your relationship to writing growing up, or when did you become interested in this as a pastime? Um, is that good with the mic? Yep. This is good? You can hear me? Can you move a little um, I think, yeah, I went to a thing last night. My voice, I sound like Brenda Vaccaro, so forgive me. Um, but uh, but I, I started... Um, I was in the hospital for a long time when I was a little girl, and when I came out of the hospital, I was very shy, and I, I, didn't, I didn't like to talk to other people. I, I wasn't particularly social as a child, and I would sit and read. So I would read all the time. So I would read, like, you know, the Bobsy Twins and, and Nancy Drew and Encyclopedia Brown and then I would try and write them, and I would write them, and it would be the, the biggest ripoff ever. It was like I would write The Brown Twins and Encyclopedia Jones, and I'd write these books, and I would take them to my parents, and my parents would tell me that I was brilliant, as parents do. So I kept writing, and um, I just sort of fell in love with it. And uh, I fell into acting because it was another way to sort of cope with trying to express myself. Mm -hmm. um, and then... Sometimes you're given material that may not be the best material you've ever had in your life, and then you learn how to rewrite things to make it a little more like what you might want to do. And Was that so, something you were kind of doing as an actor over the years? It's a horrible thing to say, isn't it? it? But listen, this is a, a reality of the business. Um, no, you know, honestly, certain shows that I've been on have been... Uh, very serious about keeping things absolutely to the letter, what they wrote. And other ones, like CSI, for example. CSI was really open to anything that you wanted to bring to a character because there are only so many different ways to say seven alleles in common. So when you want to have, and I've done all of them. Um, so I, I, you know, I, Wally Langham, who played my love interest, we literally sat down one day and we said, wouldn't it be kind of fun if we were love interests? And so we started adding little looks and little glances and, and would say things to each other. And they, and they love that stuff on that 
that show because it's all about the crime. And so if you bring the character bits to it, they're more than happy to listen. And it seems like you guys, on that show specifically, you and Wally and Berman and uh, those guys got to play a little more characters than, you know, the... The investigation robots that everyone else was kind of going. We got through. to be. We were sort of like the lower decks in Star yeah. Trek, and um, I <laughs> know this is. <laughs> I told oh, you, I was a geek growing too. up. <laughs> we've talked about that Star Trek thing too. Oh, it was awesome, right? All I right, love that. Later. Episode. All right, yeah. go ahead. Okay. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so you guys were allowed to give a little character to your characters yeah. and be a little uh, more whimsical. We were allowed to be whimsical. Mm-hmm. I like that you pronounce the H. Yeah. That's why. Yeah, that's why I love you. Um, <laughs> professional yeah. podcaster. Um, uh, so, so in all of this, did you, did it ever occur to you? You know, you're you're kind of rewriting or creating as much as you can as an actor. When did it occur to you that I could try my hand at actual narrative storytelling? Um, I had written two scripts with friends, and I'd had a really great time doing it. But to be honest, when I was on CSI, my last year, uh, they they shift the, the cast around a lot, and and when they bring in big people as the stars, then sometimes you. Take a, I'll be totally honest, you take a pay cut. And when you take a pay cut, you say things like, maybe I'd like to sit in with the writers and I'd like to learn another craft and this would be kind of a cool way for you guys to make it up to me if you would. So I sat in and I, and I learned how to break a story and I, I had a great time doing it. And so they asked me if I'd write an episode with Wally. And we co-wrote an episode and I fell in love with it. I mean, it was just, it was so much fun for me. Like, my husband and I go scuba diving, and he told me when I learned how that once you put your head underwater, you either freak out or you love it. And I'd heard the same thing about writing. You see the blinking cursor, and it either makes you panic or you go, oh, I get to fill all this space. And, and I That's was That's what the makes me panic. <laughs> <laughs> well, sure. You Dan, you're well. speaking as a real writer here. <laughs> uh, the, um, you know the terror of the blank page. <laughs> Um, let, let's no. talk about that. Have, have yeah. I was just I was just throwing in a joke. I, yeah. no, not, you I didn't want to steal the. Uh, it's become mic. it's become a whole subject it's now. Become a whole subject. Um, the panic you, of the cursor. Have you always been a writer? Um, not consciously. Um, I was always an actor, and I always was. I guess in the sense that an actor or a kid playing is a storyteller, and we are all storytellers to some degree. But I, I definitely fought it. Um, and then realized uh, uh, very quickly uh, upon arriving in, actually even in New York when I was auditioning for theater and stuff, that the actors have the least amount of power ever, always, to actually, you know, to actually have some control over their fate. And I took a class at the Groundlings in, um, on the East Coast and began writing sketches and began putting on those shows uh, for myself to perform in, but always writing. And I wasn't really calling myself a writer, but it seemed to me like the only way that it was going to happen. And it was because, and I think you, maybe you weren't thinking of yourself that way because you were writing for yourself to perform, right? You were still a performer. Right, exactly. I I mean, to me, that was a means to an end. And and, and I think that that sort of carried me for a while. I was always sort of writing scenes or a play or a one act or a sketch show or a comedy show as a way for me to have an outlet to perform. Um, And then when I came out here, uh, I came out here with a sketch show that I had written, a two-person sketch show, which I thought was just a vehicle to get more acting work. And it got me attention as a writer. And I fought it, and I fought it. <laughs> and around how, that... Uh, what and, kind of attention did it get you, and how did you resist it? Well, I, you know, I, I put on this show at the Cannon Theater in Beverly Hills, which was... Uh, I, I, they would get, I worked there in the box office. That glamorous job was my first <laughs> job out here in the box office. And they would allow me to perform my show on the, on the dark nights. For nothing. 
And so uh, I think an ICM agent came out to see the, the show. And, you know, I was just hoping to be discovered as an actor. And the agent took me out to breakfast and said, would be happy, we'd be thrilled to represent you as a writer. <laughs> I was like, ouch. And I was like, well, you know, I, this, I, I, I am an actor and a writer, so I would need to know that I was going to be represented in both disciplines or I, you know, and I, at the time, it was probably a really dumb move, but at the time I really did not want to let someone tell me that I could only be one thing. And I, and I, and I felt that way for a very long time. I felt like I, despite what this town wants you, wants to do, which is to put you in a particular box, uh, I was, I would not do it. I would continue to try to act and I would continue to write. And I sort of have been doing that and continue to do that um, ever since. But my husband, uh, Don Roos, who is a screenwriter and a director, he was so frustrated by the part of me that wanted to be an actor. He's like, it's so lame. You're so... <laughs> he was always telling me how lame and ridiculous it was and how you can write. The fact that you can write, you can open up your computer and write at any point. You cannot do that as an actor. So true. And um, I was like, write, but I hate it. So what's the point? I mean, you could tell me that I can pick up a racket and play tennis at any time also, and I hate that too. Um, but he said to me, you know, you can either work... You, you, you can work really, really hard and not work smart, or you can work smart and work hard and actually wind up seeing results. And I think in that point, I started to realize that I needed to start working a little smarter and going towards the skid and writing and letting that sort of carry me a little bit and uh and i learned that's by doing it it's really that's great advice uh for anyone uh and and clark it, it sounds to me a little like what you were going through as an actor uh and the way you started writing am i am i right about that that it was the idea that you could open up your computer and write at any time whereas as an actor you have to wait for someone to say do it um <laughs> you can say no i'm wrong no, yes. I would say yes, you're right. Uh, I, I, uh, I stumbled into a class at NYU when I was there that was being taught by David Mamet and uh, a very young actor named Bill Macy who no one had ever heard of. And, uh, and the guy was unbelievable. And the stuff they had to say about acting in the theater and writing was unbelievable. And he, the work he was doing, Glengarry Glen Ross was on Broadway at that moment. And he became a really a powerful force and a mentor and that class had Felicity Huffman and a couple other people in it and we became really best friends and formed this theater company and spent the next I don't know eight or nine years in New York really just doing plays ourselves Mm -hmm. and if you weren't acting in it you were building the set and a lot of times you were acting on a set that you'd built and (laughs) you know for a while we'd hire directors and then we stopped we started bringing in our getting giving ourselves a shot and then we started to kind of write a little bit and I always had so much my dad's a professor I kind of grew up in that world and I just had so much admiration for writing but I and I was verbal and I read a lot and I always thought if I, could, I bet I could I don't know maybe I could write I don't know no no and I was too scared to ever do it and um and so I I, I worked a lot as an, as an actor and, and a director uh doing theater in uh in New York and then I came here and a play that I had directed in New York, which was seen as a bit of an anachronism, was about uh, a mixed-race construction crew in uh, Delaware in the 70s. 
and they, they've kind of got this fragile ability to get along with each other, and then suddenly there's a riot in their town. Everyone was like, quaint and very well done. We're going to move it to off-Broadway and to a bigger theater. And, and then I came out to L.A. for pilot season and, and lived through the riots. <laughs> and, and suddenly it became this very germane, interesting play that uh, I put up a production at the Coast Playhouse, not too far away from the canon, with Sam Jackson, who was just kind of, he was shooting Pulp Fiction in the daytime. Wow. And, um, <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and put it up here and kind of, again, I had an acting agent at William Morris. They said, you know, this is good. You could maybe direct a film. And I said, I would do that. How would I do that? <laughs> and they said, you have to write something that's so good that they'll overlook the terrible burden on it that you want to direct it. <laughs> and uh, and I, I just was still too intimidated to even try it. But I had a friend who was a successful actor. And I had moved out to L.A. at that point, and nobody wanted to hear from me. And he, this is so painful, he hired me to read scripts in a windowless room at his lawyer's office looking for a project for him. Oh, dear God. (laughs) I read so many scripts that nobody wanted to produce. Look, the ones that people want to produce, a lot of them suck. Imagine how bad the ones are that nobody wants to produce. But and in a weird been... way, it was kind of impetus because yeah. I was like, okay, I can write something this bad. <laughs> <laughs> and I knew this woman. I knew this woman in New York and she had told me a story about a, maybe a former brother-in-law of hers who went door-to-door selling stun guns. And the way he did it was he would allow the women who opened the door to shock him. <laughs> and he would drop to the ground and when he got up, they would give him money and take it just to get rid of him. <laughs> And I thought, there's a story. So I wrote that scene. And then, you know, two or three weeks later, I had a screenplay. And I had kind of my terror and boredom and desire to get out of the room with no windows got me over my fear of writing, and I wrote something. There must have been something, though, in reading all that material, and especially having done, you know, stage work for so long, that you had sort of uh, come to understand narrative. You had come to understand structure and the way that these things lay out without having to sit down and take it apart as many writers have to. I certainly think so. I, I always have felt two things. That as an actor, you have, especially if you've ever done any theater, you're in the middle of the story. You tell the whole story every night. You can tell when they... I mean, our theater had squeaky seats, <laughs> which we didn't really oil because it kept us honest. If something's bullshit or not necessary or you're taking you're making a meal out of it you start to hear some squeaking (laughs) and if it gets real quiet you know this is plot this is a story and you're keeping it simple and uh i kind of felt like that was the ultimate (laughs) i did dinner theater growing up and um and so yeah it was that no they would tell you they were it was florida where they make old people and so all (laughs) i would be up there they would tell you if you sucked oh, yeah. or if it was boring. They'd be like, is it almost 6.45? We got to go. I mean, so you knew and it kept you honest because they would tell you. Yeah. So, yeah, you get a real feel for flow. <laughs> I You're, think this actors has been have your a unique perspective, well. don't yeah. you, Dan? Yeah, yeah, totally. I feel like that uh, acting and th- certainly in doing the theater and, and also the idea of understanding structure because and, – and, and understanding it well – uh, from beginning to end and what an act structure is or what beats are or what the arc of a story is having, you know, acting in something uh, 
a hundred times, a hundred performances of a play that actually has its flow to it, and then doing a television show which is shot out of order and in little pieces and having to find a certain structure within a scene even though it's going to play in the second to last moment of the show or movie. I mean, those things allowing you to sort of understand all the, the big picture as well as the smaller pieces of it, I think writing has made me a better actor or vice versa. Um, but I wanted to ask, I, I asked Clark this uh, uh, inside and I'm really curious about it because I wonder whether you've ever been, whether the fact that you do more than one thing, you sort of answered it, but I'm wondering if at any point you got resistance about doing something else. I've always worn a lot of hats and I've always worn them sometimes kicking and screaming because people don't necessarily want you to want to do more than one thing. Um, well, I would add, let me just interrupt for a second, because I would add that you sort of had this unique position having done uh, All Over the Guy. Mm-hmm. That's, what, that's the correct title, right? Yes. Oh, yes. Um, where you did write and produce and direct. Uh, I, I didn't direct I, it. I'm sorry, I, and starring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, where you, are, you come in as someone wearing all these hats. Right. But, well, nobody would have hired me to play that part right. or to write that movie. This is the thing. I mean, this is the point. I what? never would have gotten that gig as a writer, as a producer, or as an actor. So I thought, okay, well, I better... And I wrote a play first. And I did the play at the Tiffany Theater in West Hollywood. And it was about a guy and a girl. And it was like a one act. It was very short. And I adapted that into a movie and changed the woman part into a guy part. And it became sort of this when Harry meets Larry kind of... <laughs> romantic comedy but I never would have gotten that part and I never would have gotten to write it had I not just done it and and that's sort of my point which is like nobody if you were to ask someone or ask an agent to represent it or you they'd be like this is not no I mean you can't do this we'll see who we can get to do this and and to write it really and to produce it why don't you not do anything (laughs) and why don't you let us leave this to the people who know what they're doing and and I always and I feel like that happens a lot. I feel like you have to really, really prove yourself in every single discipline before, th- and, and I'm still doing it, still trying to prove your you know, value in a particular arena before the people who have to go out there and help you sell it understand that you can do more than one thing. Absolutely. And yet the Ben Stillers and the Woody Allens, and, the, and there's a long history of actors who direct and who also write, and so it's, but it seems to confound people. And I, I guess I wondered whether you guys got resistance, you know, because people think if you're just an actor that now they want to write. Yeah. yeah, I mean, Clark, I am curious from you. Certainly you were known as an actor before we started seeing uh, at least, no, credited, credited screenplays. I mean, uh, people knew who I was in New York because I'd done a bunch of plays and I was in the original production of A Few Good Men on Broadway for a year. Yeah. But no one out here knew who I was, really. A few people. I'd done a couple of indie films. Not many, and certainly not in the world. Like, I wrote that script about that person who turned out to be a serial bigamist, the guy, and he was paying for his sins by allowing these women to zap him. And um, That's so smart. And it was very weird. <laughs> really smart. It was very weird. And, um, <laughs> and uh, very quickly, it's not never has been made. It almost got made by a company that then went belly up because it would have just been too nice if it's just you wrote one thing and, bam, you got to make it and direct it. But I got a call from DreamWorks, and they, this woman, Nina Jacobson, who just produced all the Hunger Games movies, who was an executive there, said, I really like the writing in your script. We will never make that script. <laughs> but we have a dead ghost project. And here's the two-sentence log line. I understand you're driving back to L.A. across country from directing a play 
think about it during those miles. And I did, and when I got there, I had an idea, because I didn't get anything off the sentence. She said, and I wrote the script, and um, it became this movie called What Lies Beneath. And um, suddenly, uh, they were like, Zemeckis was like, he wants to keep you around. He's not going to bring another writer on. Just you're going to be there. And it was, uh, which is so unusual for a, a Hollywood movie. I, I, so I have learned, yes. <laughs> so I have learned. I, I kept waiting to be fired. It was kind of clear, like, you know, as long as you do what you're told, you're going to stay on and write the stuff. And I was like, all right, I want to. And, I mean, to answer Dan's question, nobody, I don't think any of them, they were like, oh, you act? Oh, okay. You know what I mean? I was like, oh, wow, okay. Now I'm the writer guy. And they're like, so whichever box they happen to see you in, they right, don't really want to see you in the other one. You were asking to be in the movie. yes. And then a weird Which thing happened. I wasn't, yeah. And the weird thing happened was suddenly, I don't know if it, which one of the things. I would go to an audition after this happened, and suddenly I didn't realize it wasn't quite, there was just a slight shaving off the top of desperation mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. when I would go into an audition because I was at least making a living yeah. as a writer. And I would kind of be like, Listen, I'll, I'll do this, whatever. I'm a, I'm a writer-actor. <laughs> and... Um, and I don't know, I just felt like maybe that was a little better. But also, people had read my name in the trades, as stupid as that all is. And suddenly, mm-hmm. they were like, they want you for this movie. And I was like, to act? And they're like, yeah. And it's, it's, there's, a kind of, there's a kind of, was a weird synergy. We should, we, yeah, we should actually take this opportunity uh, to talk about the life of a, an actor in Los Angeles, uh, going on auditions. <laughs> what? Yeah, I'm looking at you. Because uh, you guys were talking about it a little bit in the green room, but you know, a lot of people aren't familiar with that, especially most, a lot of people who come to these panels are writers, so we don't see the actor side of it. Can you tell us a little bit about it, Liz, and, and why you're a writer now? Yeah. <laughs> um, there is a, there's a time, which is Did this time... I, you know what? I, yes, for the most part. I, I, well, yes, for the most part. I could get you well, to act in something this weekend. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I have something that's really good for you. He's waiting she's for me to say actor. yes, yes. No, this is, uh, this is what happens. You go up for, it's pilot season right now, which to me is akin to sort of the seventh circle of Dante's Inferno. It is a horrible time when every single actor wants to get a pilot. And what people don't know, and they make you go through this experience. You go in and you read for producers and if the producers like you, you get a call saying you're producer's first choice. Now I know from personal experience and from experience from my friends, everybody's always first choice. Like I, I, Two of my friends just tested against each other for a role and they both were first choice. Because who do they call and go, you're our third choice? You probably will never get this, but please come in and give your heart to this project. So... Um, the third choice gets it, by the way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Every time. Well, Every time. You, you go for producers, and if the producers like you, then they say, we're going to set up a test deal. And when they say they want to test you, you and, in my case, probably like three other women that look remarkably like me, um, you all sign your papers for what could ostensibly be the next five to seven years of your life. You work on your material, you work on your material, you go in, and you're faced with these blank suits of, of studio executives and you go in and you read for about probably 10, 12 studio executives and if you're lucky they might laugh at what you're doing and, and mostly they don't and um, then if they like you you get to go do the same thing over again for the network and then it's all the studio people plus the heads of the network and they watch you and if they like you you get the job and if you don't you go right back to the drawing board after spending probably three weeks with these people working on the material and, and falling in love with it because I believe you have to fall in love a little bit with it to 
be good. At least I do. Even if it's and the and the and the real bitch of it is, even if it's the worst script you've ever read, by the time you're that close to getting it, you're like, this is my dream. I I I really want to do this sitcom. I really want to be the mom. I want to work with the guy that played Urkel. I want this. This is my job. And then you don't get it, and you're lit, and you're heartbroken. And to me, it's like I didn't even want to go to the prom with this dude, but now that he doesn't want me, like I I he didn't deserve me in the first place. So I went to. Uh, I had a season where I tested like that 15 times, which is a lot to go through that. And, and it's, it's a nice thing, but I ended up holding a very small pilot at the end of it that I was so grateful for. My agents were like, they won't pay your quote. You have to say no. I was like, I'm taking it. I have to do it. And, um, I, you know, I just, I, um, I got sick of that process and I, I enjoyed writing so much when I did the CSI episode that then once I left I'd gone, I went through that process a couple more times and, and then some things happened like I did Two and a Half Men for a while and I was supposed to hang out for longer and then Charlie broke and um, <laughs> and so you know you just I, I, I was basically I was getting very frustrated so I wrote a pilot and I sold that pilot and then that went well it didn't get made um, because what I wasn't aware of is that you can you can make a handsome living and never see your work on the screen. Yes. <laughs> it's, uh, it's an interesting thing that sure. happens. But then I got a deal to write another one, and then I, I wrote another one and sold it, and I just sold another one last week that I'm Amazing. hoping uh, gets made. I'm, I actually really love this one. I came up with this a while ago, and, I, and I'm thrilled to have sold it. So it's where my heart is. Now, I, I was telling you that I, in 2012, went through the trifecta of suck. Uh, I turned 40, I lost my mother, and I went through a testing experience that was lasting all... It was just, it was a lot of bad stuff at once, and I just thought, I'm going to do what makes me the happiest right now, and for me, uh, that's writing. So, can I ask a question? Okay, so this one that you're working on now yeah. sounds like you love. I love. Okay, so what if they don't make it? Are you tempted in the present moment... <laughs> to make it yourself, to explore new avenues, uh, to true detective it somewhere? It's funny, somewhere, it's you know? funny that you asked that. I, I wrote a drama that I can't... You're the Yellow King. He's the Yellow King. Oh, sorry, no, it's sorry. tonight. I'm so excited. It's tonight. It's all I can thrilled. think about. It's all I can think about. No. Answer the question so we really can get exciting. out of here. Sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> I saw the Yellow King. I knew. No, it's really exciting. Um, uh, what did you... Oh, I know what you asked. Um, I, wrote, I, uh, I wrote a drama that's very close to my heart, and, and people are responding nicely, but it's sort of like a Northern Exposure type of show, which isn't exactly exactly what is happening right now. People want something that's, that's huge and high concept. And um, I love this show. And my husband, happily, is a DP. He's a director of photography. And um, I know a lot of people that he works with. And I, I know a lot of actors. And so I have just been asked by a, a producer that produces tiny little movies to produce it as a, as a movie. So I, I don't think I will set it up as a series, but that breaks my heart. So I will make it if I have to go with an iPhone and follow actors around doing these lines, I'll make it, you know? So, yeah. Uh, Dan, talk to us, if you would, a little bit can about... Can I be in it? Yes, you can be in it. <laughs> it's You're a tough it. audition process for that. Yeah, I know. Um, can you tell us a little bit about writing pilots? You've written, written a number of pilots. Um, yes, more than a number. Many, many, many. A high number. Yes, a high number. Um, but writing those pilots that don't get made, and how does that compare with the audition process for an actor? Um... That's a good question. You live with the pilot so much longer 
You know, as Liz was saying, you, you even when I even when I claim that I don't really care that much, I'm just going to do this one, and until my kids are really young, and this way I'll be able to go to pick them up from school and drop them off, and they'll never make this, and I couldn't care less. I'm just going to write. I don't want to ruin my reputation. I'm going to do the best job I can, but I hope that they don't make it. I say that every single time, and every single time I write it, and I start to fall in love with the characters and the story, and I get really, really invested, and, and I think you have to. And pilot after pilot, I write them, and I sort of do hope that they will get go to the next level. And, and some have, and some many, many, most of them have not. Um, and in hindsight, I'm kind of secretly glad because I've been able to do a lot of other things that probably, if even one of them had gone on for eight years, I would be wealthier, but have, will have had no time So to do to have kids and a lot of other things. So in hindsight, I think I probably was glad to be able to have this career where I would write two pilots a year and they would never go forward. And I'd be like, great, now I've got a break and I'll write two more next year and this is the way it goes. The thing is, you a role, like Liz was saying, you, you, know, you could audition for 10 pilots in one or more in one pilot season. You have to invest in it very quickly and then let it go very quickly and then go to the next one, sometimes six at one time. And it's a very fast, it's sort of like one night stands. You know, you're just sort of sleeping with a lot of different people very quickly and not really remembering any of their phone and numbers. And they don't call in the morning sometimes, and it's yeah. really upsetting. And, and oh, it's called them, the 80s. Is it called the 80s? It's called the 80s. Oh, okay. And some of them are really gross and make you feel really gross about yourself. Oh, the, the yeah. 80s and the 90s. And the 90s. <laughs> But with the pilots, you know, it's, it's a longer period of time. It's a relationship. It's a real relationship. And you write them, and you fall in love with the characters, and you put some of your best material in it. And as time goes on, the months pass, and you deliver it, and the network like, gets rid of all the good stuff. And then the studio as well, they give you a bunch of notes, lots and lots of notes, lots and lots of people telling you how to make it so that they will pick it up. And ultimately, it either does or does not move to, its, to the next level. But I do feel like the loss when they don't when they don't move forward is something that takes me a little bit longer to get over than sometimes a role depending um, so I, I feel like even though I claim to not be invested when I first get started it's such a big investment to put all those stories down yeah. and um, you kind of can't help but get invested otherwise what's the point of it and you're not going to turn out something very good anyway that's right that's right and the thing is there's a lot of different ways to play that game anyway I mean there are times you walk in and try to sell a pilot that's from your true life that's from your experience that could only have been written by you and it's really unique and people the networks tend to get very attracted to your passion and you, what makes you unique and your story and I've oftentimes been able to sell stories like that and but those are not necessarily the stories that they, they attract. They're very attractive to the network executives who are like, oh, my God, thank God, what a breath of fresh air. It's not a procedural, and it's, it's not got, you know, spies that are ex-Playboy bunnies. And it's just so fresh, and it's unique, and it's his point of view, and it's just we definitely want to make this. And you go, and you write it, and you put your heart and soul in it, and it ultimately does not get picked up because it has no ex-Playboy bunnies in it who solve crimes. So it's this cycle. And then you fall into the trap of wanting to come up with something that's going to be so commercial and so sellable and you go in there and it's you with your unique point of view and your unique self and all your storytelling ability and you try to sell that idea of the playboy bunnies who solve crimes your version of it and you're sort of squeezing 
your point of view onto something that's so, and you either sell it or you don't, but ultimately it becomes a very difficult pilot. I'm to pitching write. that next week. You totally should. Yeah. Agents of Bunny. <laughs> Just saying. Oh my God, we could so make that. It's in my TiVo queue right now. <laughs> Love it so much. Uh, Clark, I want to talk to you uh, uh, for a moment about writing for actors. Uh, you know, watching Choke and even watching just this clip from Trust Me, uh, it's clear that you, and maybe I'm wrong, but it, it looks like you take a lot of joy in writing for actors, giving them lines to deliver. Uh, can you talk to us at all about that process and how you're thinking about character and how you're thinking about the actors' uh, performances as you write? That's, that's a big one. Um, Jesus. Well, listen, we're I, a half hour in. Let's okay, get okay, into I'm it. Gonna, uh, ah. <laughs> oh, fuck. Um, okay, so Mamet said a great thing to me early on when I was in college. He said, uh, be the kind of actor you'd want to work with. It's just another kind of extrapolations on the golden rule, right? The kind of thing you'd like to see. Anything beyond that you can't really do. Um, and I always thought that was right. And uh, I knew I... I was still trying to write the thing that I could attach myself to um, so, so tightly that they couldn't scrape me off. <laughs> and they sent me the book of Choke by Chuck Palahniuk, who wrote Fight Club, and I loved it. And it kind of it felt like something that, that could conceivably have come out of my own sick head, not just his. <laughs> and um, so that was an adaptation. And I, did a, and I thought, there's so much funny stuff in here. There's such a story... I'm just going to pick my favorite parts and there will be a movie. And I did it and I had put my money, I bought the rights with a friend and, you know, attached myself. And I, the first draft was just wretched. It just, How so? It just lay there like a dead thing. It just, it's one of those really hard to put your finger on. It just didn't have life. It felt like what it was. I had taken my favorite parts and it wasn't a new organism like there's a you know there's a reason you hear all these great novelists the really great ones saying you've got to be a little irreverent and Chuck Palahniuk had said to me just do just please don't be too faithful sometimes I felt like they were a little too faithful with Fight Club and I was like I love Fight Club don't say anything about it and he loved it too but and I you know so I did this draft and I went that's not right and I thought okay I have to put the damn book away I literally admit to the ritual of throwing the book in the bottom of the drawer and uh and then I just wrote what I remembered and made it kind of my own story as much as I could and kind of added new stuff. And suddenly it started to breathe. This has nothing to do with the question you asked me. Well, it, it, is, a, it is sort of a... I don't really a, write for people. Mm-hmm. I write the stuff I want to see. That's what that was. What is, what is it about this story, as I remember it, not even reading it, that felt weirdly autobiographical to me? And suddenly, once I fueled it through there, and I, I feel like I'm usually writing either for myself or, you know, for, like, I used to, sometimes I'll be writing for, like, you know, Steve McQueen when he was 41. <laughs> you know, or I'll write this thing for Jeff Bridges, but he's 28. And I just, I'll have those actors' voices. Or this scene is very much Torturo. He's Torturo, John Torturo here. And here he's walking. And But it's, I guess I... Once Sam signed up to do it, I, I, he's such a spectacular person and an actor. We kind of sat in his apartment in New York, and, you know, he would have, like, broom mops on my head, so I would be the various women, and he would be <laughs> kissing me and just lost in this world. And I was learning so much, you know, from his acting process, but I was like, oh, my God, I got to go. I got to go. I want to make this more not his voice, 
but I saw the things I'd want him to try. Because I actually feel like people make mistakes with casting where the most exciting stuff, I think, is when you put Matthew McConaughey in the personality of a brilliant detective. <laughs> it's the fusion of those two things that I, I find pretty interesting. And just to... I wrote this piece about Los Angeles, and it was, like, going to be nine hours long, and no one would ever see it. And I realized, oh, that's not going to work. But one of them, one, and one of the stories stuck out, and I pulled that out, and it was about this loser agent for child actors. And after I started to write it, and I was kind of writing it for different people, and it became more and more like this thing that was, if I tried to pull it out of me, I would have died on the spot. And, uh, and, I, and I, I had the thing... Where I went, okay, I'm turning 50. Maybe somebody's going to give me something that's this rich in a film, but they haven't yet, you know? So fuck them. I'm going to try to make it. Yeah. And at that point, luckily enough, other stuff had happened. Thank, thank you, Marvel. Um, <laughs> that I, I didn't get quite the same level of resistance. They'd be like, oh, okay, okay. Can you get some other people around you? Like, and I was like, I have friends. I have friends. And, um, but it was very much driven by that. I didn't, it wasn't like a vanity piece, as you will see if you see the film. But it was a thing where I desperately needed that challenge. And while I do feel really lucky, because I actually feel like some of the stuff Joss Whedon gave me to do in The Avengers and in Much Ado About Nothing has been as challenging as anything, you know, I, I guess... I mean to say, the comic book stuff has been hugely challenging. I don't look down on it. It's been really nourishing for me but uh, there was a thing I needed to do both uh, the other part is you don't get to have a voice this is a, is a really weird movie that's what I wanted to say you know and uh, that's what's missing you're a little bit of song in, in somebody else's mixtape when you're an actor and every totally. once in a while you want to get behind the wheels of steel my friend nicely said I'm just saying yeah you should totally write <laughs> that's really good It's, it's interesting to me to hear you talk about the process, and it sounds like what you need to do is immerse yourself in this world, uh, in, in both of these instances. You know, when you were just kind of trying to recreate the things you liked in Choke, it wasn't alive. But when it, it became alive for you, when you could really enter that world. And likewise, you know, you had to go into this nine-hour Los Angeles piece. Well, that's funny, because I was hearing it from both of, both of these guys... I, I wrote for the studios after What Lies Beneath a bunch, and each one of them was, no matter how many producers were, like, freaking me out and giving me different notes and how confused and tortured I felt, I, this is my thing. I love this mm -hmm. thing. Like, I, you can't do anything good unless you make it something you're desperate to talk about and care about. Yeah. And it just makes it that much more painful, mm -hmm. especially when I kind of turn around four years later and none of the three projects I had done were going to get made. I was like, I'm not here to put stuff on, to have files on my desktop. You know, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., we make a show, people are going to see it, you know, that week. Uh, I want to talk about, Liz, uh, you've written how many, four pilots now? Mm -hmm. uh, that's crazy, in just a few years, too. It's been a little over two years. Uh, congratulations. Thanks. That's huge. Yeah. Um, can you tell us a little bit about sort of that same process where you're working with other entities, but you need to, you know, 
have a stake in this world that you've created. Uh, and you've worked on stuff that's come from you and stuff that's come from <coughs> producers, too, who have pitched you ideas, right? Um, yeah. The, the first thing that I sold was a spec script. I just wrote it because it was based on somebody in my life. It was based on a, a certain thing that would have happened in my life had I gone in, in a slightly different direction. And I sold that spec, and... Um, I experienced an interesting thing because the network read it, and I knew nothing. I didn't know about getting network notes because I'd sat in with CSI, but I didn't know I didn't know what they could tell right. you. And, and my, you sat in on CSI and yeah, well, they don't give network six, notes. Seven, it's like, yeah, right. the show's been on for like 107 years, so their notes are like, yeah, good. I right. mean, what are they going to say? So, um, so I got this call, and I was told I was going to sit down and have network notes, and the non-writing producer that was attached said, it's going to be something like, you know, maybe this guy should be 30 instead of 35. Well, my note was, we, I love this too. They think we're so stupid and that we don't talk to each other. They call and they go, we love you. Like, again, who are they going to call and oh go, God. we're iffy on you? Right. But, um, but no, we Kiss love you. We love told. your yeah. voice. We love everything about this. Listen, <laughs> can you lift the A story and change it? Because we think the A story would be great for like an episode four or an episode five. Can you keep all the same emotional ties? Can you keep all, we love the dialogue. We love the way they talk to each other. Can you just change the... Uh, story. <laughs> and I was like, they can do that? And my producer was like, yeah. So I had to learn very quickly how to, what I learned, and this has been uh, remarkably helpful, I talked to a lot of writer <laughs> friends of mine, I learned about taking the spirit of the note as opposed to taking the note at face value because in the first script I wrote, there was something with a, a baby and the baby swallows something and the, the, well, the parents think the baby swallowed something and they're freaking out. My network note on that one by one person was maybe the baby did swallow it and the whole A story is about them waiting. And I was like, for the baby to shit? Like, I'm not going to write a half-hour story about waiting for the baby. No. So I, I learned that you could write about them being concerned about the baby for another reason that didn't involve waiting for a, a baby bowel movement. Because guess what they're not? <laughs> Writers. Exactly. So I, I learned, okay, what they, need, what they need from this is to see this group of adults care about this child together and how the child brings them together. So it doesn't have to be that, but I'll pick something else. I once got a Chinese man. I wrote a pilot years ago. It was a comedy. And I, I couldn't believe it. The note back was, we want a Chinese menu. Please send us four possibilities for an A story and four possibilities for a B story. And we were going to match up the A with a B. Talk about an inorganic, not from the heart, like this is the story that we were telling. It's like, okay, sure. That's going to make a great script. And, you know, what? Does this work for you people? Like this? And I was young, er. Her, um, and less experienced, and I wasn't going to fight back, and I wasn't really going to argue or say, like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. What is bothering you about the one that we have, and maybe we can get at something more organically. But, I, you know, it, they'll try anything. Yeah. Because they're just as panicked where well, they are as I, we are. I also think it's interesting mm -hmm. when the studio and the network tell you completely Com different notes. Totally. I mean, because one of them is like, well, we need more of this. And then the other one's like, we need far less of this. <laughs> and, and you go, I, I can't do both at the same time. And so they're like, well, that's not our problem. And basically... You know, Will you guys I, speak? I, do you guys ever speak to each other? Oh, okay, got it. Copy yeah, that. It's, it's, uh, ABC Studios and ABC Network do not speak to each other. <laughs> I mean, they do, but sometimes they don't. Yeah, it's a bizarre experience. Um... <laughs> You know, I, the one thing that I will say, I've, I've, I wrote two specs that I sold. The third thing, I wrote a pilot for NBC for an actress named Kristen Ritter, who's just 
fantastic. Um, it did not, it didn't move forward. Um, but the experience with that was I was brought on as a hired hand. Um, they said, they gave me the two sentences and they said, what do you think about this? And so I had to come up with a pitch based on these two sentences. And it was a world that I didn't know anything about. I don't particularly care about. So I was like, my first thought is I think it's really stupid. I don't know anything about it, but I wanted to work with Kristen. And, um, so I found it was weird to work that way for me because they would offer a note and they'd go, well, what is behind this character's motivation? And I was like, that's my idea. I mean, you know, you have to sort of you you have to sort of adapt what they think is a good idea and make it a good idea in your own head. But it wasn't my baby, so it was hard. Right. To, it was hard to lay it all out on the table and go, no, he has to feel this way because it's like I don't even come up with a guy. I, I don't, you know. Um, the Whereas, thing, yeah, with the thing you just the thing sold. I just sold is very personal. It's based on something in my life, so I I can say no. She would never talk like that. I can give you some semblance of what you're looking for but that doesn't make sense to me you know so i feel more power when it comes from something that, that obviously comes from my own heart one of the reasons why i started a company with lisa kudrow uh, back in 2003 and one of the reasons why my husband don Roos and lisa and i created this web series of web therapy was because we were so all, in, in each of our own individual ways we're so tired not giving up, but we're so tired of sort of this studio network ownership business. This like acting as an employee. And by the way, it's very, you know, it can be lucrative and you obviously are working for someone who owns the content and you owe it to them to deliver what they bought. But when you own the idea and we decided to do the show and really create these outlines and improvise and let actors just play and we would own it and nobody would give us any notes. It was really this really fun corner of the internet where we could just play. And we've been doing it for a very long time, but I know that it sort of satisfied this little, this, this hunger in each of us after having done so many and continue to work so much for hire that it's a place where you really can let an actor just go and come up with stories that are absurd and let Lisa play this heinous character and it really we don't get notes from anybody and it really is a great way to just sort of unleash that part of you that doesn't have to necessarily say yes or no and that pure creation I mean that's why we kind of got into this in the first place isn't it it's the let's go off and join the circus yeah right Uh, but oh my god there's so many notes at the circus well that and we're all spectacularly unhealthy (laughs) (laughs) you know that too yeah but it's also it seems like I don't know if this it seems like there's something strange going on and that the, the world is changing of it so Absolutely. rapidly and the networks seem to be kind of clinging to this older, very super managerial model. I don't, I'm not, I haven't written a, a pilot, so I don't, I don't run in those meetings, but I hear stuff. And meanwhile, HBO and some of the other cable networks have really made a point to go, we're going to hire creative people we trust. And they aren't for completely free, but everyone I know who's had experiences there, find it much less encumbered it's by like, that it's stuff. It's like True Detective. It, it's yeah. Very, yeah. One writer, one director. Yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah. it's, it's funny, I keep waiting to see writer friends of mine who work with networks go, no, they're, they're following more the cable model because they realize, you know, if, if Amazon has a network, you know, how much does it mean that you're ABC or NBC? Right. And they talk to us about the live numbers of our show. Meanwhile, our numbers are crazy in the people who TiVo. Because that's everyone I know. Mm-hmm. You know, like, so if you pee, if you stop it and pee, that's, you're gone from the live right. numbers. And they're like, yeah, I'm like, and this is your metric? Yeah. Who are you? You're like, my, are you my grandparents? What are you? <laughs> they kind of are. Yeah. 
Yeah. It's one reason we started on Scandal. We started tweeting East Coast yeah. and West Coast live, the entire cast, every time. It has created this sort of rush to the appointment television again just to get people wanting to watch it live. And it's clearly worked. And I mean, it, Scandal's <laughs> successful. Yeah, and being on an ABC show, we have so many network foots. Up our ass. Scandal tweets. They live tweet their show. I'm so sorry. You guys get on there. We were told we had to. It's so. kind of fun. We do it too. Really? Well, it started as sort of some. Yeah, I mean, we. Josh Molina is on there anyway. Josh Molina is already <laughs> tweeting, so you guys may as well join him. And Carrie was a big tweeter, and it. It. We started to see results very quickly, and it became. The fans were rabid. Yeah. And so, which was kind of fun. And, you know, now it's a lot more work. And no matter where you are, and a lot of times you're not anywhere where you can really tweet. <laughs> but you're doing it anyway. And right. it keeps the audience feeling like, wow, I'm watching the show with the cast. And it's sure. uh, It makes unique. that, the, yeah, that kind of live experience that you get from, you know, why you get big numbers on a sporting event. When I was a kid, you'd watch I Dream of Jeannie. You'd write a letter to Barbara Eden. You'd pray that in nine months you might get a photocopied picture back from her. And nowadays... Right? So did I. <laughs> I wanted to visit the bottle. Me too. <laughs> I wanted to live in the bottle yeah. with Major Nelson, but it's a similar It's a similar Different experience. sides of the same dream, brother. Same dream. I know. Um, <laughs> and now we live in a world where you want to talk to the star of your favorite TV show, and you, you can, yeah. practically. So it's, it's, we've really come a long way. But it really has... The difference between cable... As much as the networks want to copy the cable networks, who are allowing sort of the writer creators to have more autonomy they don't they really say that they want that and they certainly want that in the subject matter but they are way too scared well yeah I wanted to ask you about this um, we're going to watch a clip from web ther- therapy or a couple clips in a minute but I do want to ask you I mean you were on staff on Grey's Anatomy mm-hmm. um, what was it like there how many jobs as- do you have <laughs> yeah, yeah. man <laughs> hardest working man that pay <laughs> what um, what was the relationship like with the network? And, and working on a moving train like that is very different from writing a pilot or a feature or something. Yeah, yeah. I came into Grey's Anatomy as a consultant. Um, I was, had already started acting on Scandal as a guest star, and they were like, yeah, you can work a couple of days here, and we'll know where to find you when we want you over there. And it all seemed like, okay, sure. I was suddenly a sort of under contract, only not, by Shondaland. And um, I came in in season nine of Grey's Anatomy, and there were very firm ways in which that show's stories get broken. Very big cast. I had never worked on a show that had to... I mean, to this day, and I'm in my second year there now, but um, to have to service that many series regulars per episode, it's like 13 different characters. Were you servicing a lot of series regulars? (laughs) Yeah, it's my job. Okay. (laughs) That's what they told me I had to do. That's a special <laughs> Emmy right there, my friends. <laughs> um, uh, but it, it, it is... Uh, and yet, Shonda has so much clout now because of Grey's and because of sca- uh, Scandal that the notes are non-existent. I mean, I know that on Grey's, they don't really get them. Occasionally, they'll say, does she have to wear purple, you know, as a note? And you'd be like, well, we shot it already, and she was wearing purple. So unless you want to pay to have it graphically, you know, uh, computer graphically replaced. And on Scandal, they will give a note like, does, it, does there have to be that much torture on the show? And Sean will say, yeah, this show has torture. 
And then that's how that note is handled. So I think that in success, you right. get less and less, uh, you know, the, the network is less in your business. But uh, that's, a, you know, it's nine years of being on the air and ten years now and going into the eleventh year. You just reminded me of, I, I did a show uh, ten, no, more than ten years ago called The Tick, and it was based on... Um, Any Tick fans here? That's right. They, they, thank you. I love that show so much. But they, um, they, they bought the show, and they didn't quite get what they bought. So they, <laughs> they had the pilot, and I, I knew the writers really well. And, and they said, you know, we get calls like, we don't get what the tick is. Like, they'd call Ben Edlin and go, we don't, we don't quite get what he's supposed to be. And Ben's like... Well, he's a tick. And, you know, and they're like, yeah, but, I mean, wh- wh- is he really a superhero? Where did he come from? Ben's like... I don't, I don't know. I mean, you know, like, it, it was ridiculous. So it almost got to the point, like, does he have to be blue? And it's like, well, he's a tick. Yeah, I mean, it was, it, was a very, it was a very strange thing to watch them buy a product and then sort of want to backpedal and go, but, but wait a second, we, do, we don't get this. This doesn't make us laugh. So. Which happens, I feel like, more and more often. I mean, you look at the shows that are bought, even this year, and there are these high-concept pilots, but nobody knows what that series is, and that's, they run into trouble, and they yeah. get canceled after 12. Six, but sure. <laughs> for, that, for the first season of that web therapy, how long was the season? How much did you guys produce? And we, uh, we did it for a, a Lexus-owned digital broadband, and I guess, site called L Studio. We made 15 webisodes, 15 scenes, five different actors, three, you know, an arc of three scenes mm-hmm. for each. And... Um, so we did 15, and then we did another 15, and then another 15. By the time Showtime asked us to license the existing content, which was the first time they'd done anything like that, yeah. uh, called ready-made programming, we were putting together, really, the, the smaller scenes into these half hours and layering in a way to tell an arc, you know, a season-long arc in 10 episodes from the little pieces that we'd done. And we've been doing that ever since, but now we shoot them as small pieces, but we also shoot them with the knowledge that we're trying to put together a 10-episode season. Um, and can I ask, and feel free not to answer, but was this all paid for out of pocket? I mean, was this really No, the Lexus thing? paid for the webisodes. Um, and then, uh, so each time we did a web season, we would get a, a small, you know, yeah. it, was only, it was just about as much money as we needed to make them. Because mm-hmm. they look great, too, uh, well, which is crazy. Thank you. We did, we did, at the back of our heads, we wanted to make sure that we were using, that the production design and the cameras and the lighting was all such that if we eventually wound up on television, it wouldn't be a huge shift. Sure. And luckily, we did wind up on TV, um, if you call a web episode a webisode, are you tempted ever to call a web season a weezen? <laughs> oh, my God. I am now. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah. So weezen one and weezen two <laughs> were among our favorites. But Have you guys explored other... Um... Uh, narrative possibilities. I mean, this worked clearly worked well for you, and you enjoyed doing it. Um, have you approached other projects with an eye towards, you know, let's do this as uh, internet stuff or as weasons? Um, yeah, you know, we have had, we've had other projects that we've taken out to pitch as, you know, we, Lisa and I produced a show called Who Do You Think You Are, mm-hmm. which is a documentary, uh, unscripted series, and we came up with another idea that was along those lines, 
and it's now we're now going to be doing it on L Studio, which is the same. You know, we're doing a smaller version of it. Um, it's certainly not what we started out doing. It wasn't our goal to be doing web content, but it's an interesting model, and it also feels like a way to try out content sure. that could eventually wind up in a longer format. And uh, so, and we've we've obviously had success doing it that way, but. Um, but not on purpose. We haven't actually done no. that. Well, that's every success story, right? It's right. never on purpose. Right. No uh, purpose. All right, let's get some questions. When you're trying to figure out, starting out trying to figure out the kind of writer you are and where your voice is, especially for guys like you, when you're working beside people like Shonda Rhimes, Joss Whedon, David Mamet, do you ever like go like, okay, well, I'm looking at them. How do I, what do I do? How do I evolve my process based on what they're doing? Or do you look at them like, okay, well, that's what their thing is. I can't do that. How do I go find my thing? That's a good question. Um, <laughs> it's everybody's question. How do you kind of take what's useful from the people you admire and not fall into the trap of kind of aping what they do because it won't work for you? You know what I mean? You can't. Um, <laughs> I'm remembering a, har- a very inappropriate story. That David Mamet told us in an acting class one day where he was talking about the Moscow Art Theater, Stanislavski's Theater, which he was obsessed with. And he said that they had a guy there who was like the equivalent of the Moscow Art Theater's... um, It's too inappropriate to tell this story. (laughs) But the bottom line was, if this this guy's your favorite actor, he was like their equivalent of Christopher Walken and Stanislavski was saying, you're a big fan of that guy, aren't you? And you're like, yeah, yeah. Would you let him sleep with your girlfriend? And the guy was like, no. He's like, then don't let him do your acting. (laughs) And... It was much worse the way he told it. Really? David Mamet told it in a dirtier way? But so... You're shocked, you're shocked, right? There might have been some swearing. Um, But David and Bill had met at Goddard College, this hippie college in Vermont, and started a theater company in Chicago at the same time Steppenwolf did, and they all learned to do everything, and they really passed that on. So that was the model we took, hire yourself, you know? And I guess the thing that I always go to out of that one is... You know, what do I love? What's the thing I would love to see? I find that a really useful compass point. But also, don't be afraid. I mean, listen, we, no, none of us would be anywhere if we were not inspired by other people. Like, I am inspired by listening to these guys today. Like, I was, you know, in a particular state of feeling like I'll never do anything ever again when I got here today. And listening to these guys talk and talk about, like, finding a voice and getting passionate about what you believe in and writing something that would be fun to act, all even listening to that makes me want to go back to the computer and, and watching. Listen, Shonda was a huge fan of Aaron Sorkin. She said she doesn't write like Aaron, but she was given permission to write in a particular way because she was inspired and touched and excited by a way in which he found his own voice. And I think we all, you have to sort of know the difference between trying to ape somebody and getting really inspired by like, well, wait a minute, who says that you can't write a monologue this long on a television show. I mean, you shouldn't, but (laughs) if you talk fast enough, I mean, and so I I feel like finding, understanding where you, when you're being inspired and then really make, you know, you have to find your own voice. And that only comes from writing a lot of really shitty things. I was just going to say the same thing. It's after writing a lot, you find your own voice and you can tell when you start aping people because I, I, I wrote something and I was like, this is great. They're throwing around all of these, these, these cultural references. This is fantastic. This is Gilmore Girls. But it's... Um, <laughs> and so I think you, you start to be able to feel when you're taking a little bit too much of somebody else and what is sort of organically your own voice. And in my case... I, 
I, I sort of write in a specific way, and I've, I've met some people that like it, and I've met some people who absolutely don't, and, and I stay true to it because I, I, it seems to be working f- for me most of the time, and you, you start to be able to tell when you're truly sounding like you. You know, I always give it to the husband for a test read, and he, and he can always tell me. You know, like so whatever you write, send to her. To husband. my husband, <laughs> yes. Do you do you guys have uh, test readers? Do you have people that you give it to those early drafts? Hey, yeah, I give it to I my give, husband. I give, give it, it to husband. my wife, but she's rough. <laughs> <laughs> I got she doesn't like anything I write. Um, but I have some other people. Mm-hmm. I have some other, definitely some other people. It's a big favor to ask. It, you know? it definitely is. I, I, I got a stack of. Scripts that I just see disappointed faces looking at me next to my bed when I go to sleep every night. Um, it's funny. I think this is a really, the more I think about your question, it's, it's a really big one because I feel like there's, there's this thing that we, I feel like we perpetuate and it's out there, which is there's this monolith, there's a tower like... You know, and if you try to climb up there and work at what you love, you'll probably be eaten by the dragons or else the orcs will get you and <laughs> you won't make it, dude. But try anyway. Good luck. And I just kind of think that's bullshit. <laughs> like, uh, they need you. They need your point of view. There is a singular, specific take on the world and a way of expressing it that only you have. And I guess that's why this is such an important question, is that the ability to find out what it is you want to say, instead of trying to fit yourself into some paradigm, is actually the thing that will find you your niche. Like I was, I remember going, I've got to teach them that they need me as an actor. And, and not really having much success for 20 years. You know, and then suddenly going, well, this kind of weird way that I look and how I am, it kind of works for this particular bureaucrat. And sooner or later, I feel like there's a moment where they need you if you've been kind of honing in what that is that you, that you want to say and do. It, it's an interesting balance, though, that you have to make. And Dan, you can probably speak to this. Between having your own voice and then getting hired on somebody else's show where mm-hmm. you have to write in his or her voice. Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of times you get hired because they like your voice. And then they're like, now... Suppress that as much as you possibly can. Don't be anything like what you are at all. And be more like us and write like us and do like we do. Or we, or we will rewrite you. you. And they do and they will. And, you, you know. But, uh, yeah, it is a, it's, it, listen, it's about art versus commerce always. You do what you have to do so that you can go do what you want to do. And what you want to do should be that thing that Clark's talking about, that thing that is so singularly you that takes time. It really does take time to develop what that is. And, uh, and each new thing that you write will change you just a little bit. And, and a lot of it comes from writing terribly, writing yeah. badly, and letting yourself write badly. But doing also, it a lot. And doing it a lot. And, don't let, and here's the other thing I really firmly believe. You have to pick who is genuinely a fan of yours you pick one or two, maybe three people who will always read your work and let you and give, take notes from them. But if you start to tell your ideas to people, I'm thinking about writing this thing, just a look on their face can kill your creativity in one second. Just a, like a, it could be gas on their part. And you'll be like, oh, you hate it. It's been done too many times. I know, it's stupid. I'm stupid. I'm stupid, and I shouldn't have thought of it, and you're absolutely right. They haven't even said a word. And you, so it's, very, it's yeah. so precious. The creative process is so fragile that I also believe when you finish writing something, you want to put it in the hands of someone who is going to be honest, who you trust, and who's not just 
competing with you are going to tell you, like, I've read three scripts just like this, dude, and this is really crap. Because that's not helpful. Uh, once a project you've been involved with is out in the world and people get to see it, how do you respond differently when people, like, we just saw two clips from both two of you. Were you more nervous as a writer of how we responded or more nervous because you were an actor in it to see how the audience reacted to it? Dan? Oh, God. <laughs> well, where are you more insecure? <laughs> It's a very, very tight race. <laughs> you know, web therapy is really tricky because it's improvised. So I guess I get... It's very tied together. We're, we know what the concepts of the stories we want to tell, but we're completely improvising in that moment. And uh, so, uh, you know, I don't know. There's a vain, very vain part of me that's always nervous, the actor in me, but I also always hope that we're telling a story that's remotely funny and smart. So I, I get... I get ne- my inner voices scream at me from both sides. <laughs> it, it seems like it, it's sort of related to that thing we were talking about earlier about, you know, when you have written something, you've been living with it for a lot longer. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would imagine watching yourselves on a TV show is very, and having to tweet about it is very different from, you know, watching the pilot that you oh, yeah. created or the film oh, yeah, that you created. Yeah, the live tweet is not for the faint of heart, boy. <laughs> oh, dear God. People have, they're very generous with their opinion of you and your, how you look and what's, yeah. But, it, but it's also very supportive. It's hard. I wish our consciousness, consciousnesses weren't like this, but I could, I mean, I, I can't remember very well really nice reviews, but I could quote you. The nastiest. Oh, shit it's called red pencil mentality. Yeah. yeah, you can always remember the bad one. There can be a hundred mm-hmm. good ones, but the, it's the red pencil on the I paper. Um, yeah, I just I, when I was a kid um, and and I would get tests graded, you know, I could get a B plus. But if there's one thing circled, you're like, <laughs> and um, yeah, you know, sometimes these things are written about you and you read them, and I, it's an interesting thing too to me with the internet because I think that I think the people that write them don't know that sometimes we see them, and and <laughs> and it's it's odd. There's a disconnect. Because I think we used to know that if you say something to somebody, you'd see by the reaction on their face that it hurt their feelings. But you could just type it and press send, and you don't really even think about the fact that there might be a human being at the end of it. Twitter is a double-edged sword. It's definitely a double-edged sword. Yeah. Nope. Okay. Um, I was... What would you say is the difference, um, both in difficulty and enjoyment, between, since you've all both acted and written, but between writing for anyone or writing for something that you know you're going to be acting in? I, I've only acted in the, in the CSI episode that I wrote. <laughs> like, that's the only time I've done both. What, what was the question is, when you're acting something that you wrote, does it feel more vulnerable? It's really hard. I don't know. I find it really hard to... Uh, I find it really hard to kind of sense the weaknesses I would kind of get it mirrored back to me uh, in the stuff that I wrote you're, you're just I find that the, the difficult thing in writing is you get so close to it that it stops even looking like English at a certain point and then you have to kind of get that objectivity um, on the other hand as the director uh, of, the, of that film end of Choke it's really useful to be there and also be the writer because you can kind of you can feel what's clunky. You can feel what's not necessary. You can throw in a joke. You can try to deal with what the location's offering you on the fly. So you've already all t- 
touched on how the business is changing. So I'm wondering if you had your choice between doing like a network series or a film or to work on something like a Netflix House of Cards, which you might have a little bit more autonomy with, or say a Kickstarter where you'd have to wear a lot more hats, um, which would you choose and why? I, I want to do a version of Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Like we, These people have been friends for so long, and to go to work every day for, for five years, six years, however long that's been on, would be a, a, just a joy. A little cable show with a bunch of people I absolutely love that makes me laugh, I think, is heaven. Um, so that's what I would pick. That's what I'm working on. Yeah, I agree. I, I'm like, I'm, and maybe it's just because of the amount of time I've been doing this and doing so many different things. I, I, lately, just because of where I am in my life, I crave a feeling of a little more consistency and I'd love to just be on a show and yeah, it would be great if it was a small cable show where where the work and the writing is great, whether I created that series or someone else did. I mean, I, I, as an actor, I feel extremely fulfilled in the role that I play on Scandal and I have nothing to do with the writing of it. I mean, not one thing. And there's something really liberating about walking away from the writer's room when I go to Scandal and I'm just an actor and it's, the material's always good for the most part, and um, so I, I think I'm. I crave that. I think. Well, we're going to do the Playboy Bunnies who solve crime too. Yeah, yeah. On cable together. But as a small cable show. Yeah, it's a, a small, small cable, cable show. show. <laughs> yes. Hi. Um, so you sort of already answered this with that question, but um, with being an actor and a writer, like with um, how much do you feel like you want to say, oh, well, this is how the character would develop in my mind, like with um, Coulson's Tahiti developments in S.H.I.E.L.D.? Do you, how much of a say do you get with that? Um, you know, it's an it's, it's unusual situation because I played that character in four films, each with a different writing team. There was always a thing where the kind of character was really very small in Iron Man 1, but there was something, there was just a kind of snarkiness between him and Tony Stark where they, that they started to kind of go with and let us play a little bit. And there were some of his lines that I, you know, they let me improvise. And so I always had a little bit of say, a little bit of, I think, Colt, can, can, I, do, can I do an alt is the line that I, I get called on a lot. Because like, I like to try one where he gets to be a little more kind of pop culture and snarky. But that said, Joss had a real take on it. And the writers are terrific. And they really had a whole, they had a whole arc for who this guy was and what he was doing still alive. And it clearly wasn't what he knew about. Is, is the premise of this TV version of why this guy's still alive. And I realized that they knew more about the truth of this than I did, and they kind of, how much do you want to know? And I decided not to know too much. And, uh, and it caused a frustration. And a, I found when I knew I couldn't get it out of my head. So they know a little bit more about where this stuff is going, so nobody was more shocked than I to find out how much the... Uh, alien serum was involved in bringing him back to life last week. (laughs) Turns out I'm the blue king. (laughs) Uh, This does kind of come up on these panels quite a bit. Um, You know, the relationship that the showrunner or the writers have with the actors uh, and that collaboration is is an interesting and, and sometimes tenuous and always fruitful or hopefully fruitful thing you know, the actor lives with these characters, live with, lives with this one character the whole time where the writers are really in the minds of any number of characters. I mean, all of you guys have, have faced this. What, is, what has that relationship been with on either side of it for you? I've been really fortunate um, that writers... I, I, 
I find that they'll listen if you go up and actually have a suggestion, or they'll at least let you do an alternate take if you think it works for a certain reason, and you can you can tell them exactly why. Um, my sister was funny. She read a script of mine, and she said, how would you feel if an actor asked to change your lines? And I said, simply put, do they make it better? And she said, yeah. And I said, well, my name's still on it, yeah. I mean, like, yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I, absolutely. So, um, I, I mean, I honestly believe that if you're all building something, I think a lot of the confident writers that I've worked with have been more than open to hearing something. I mean, I don't know what they're doing behind my back, but they seem pretty open to my face. <laughs> and, uh, and, and some of it sticks and some of it doesn't. Yeah. So. Um, you, Mr. Greg, were uh, speaking about how when you're writing something, you, you hear the voice of, of the character in your head, and it's, you know, Steve McQueen at 41 or so-and-so. And how much does that have to change when you're actually casting and how much does the writer get a say in A, who is cast and B, how the performance ends up? Well, there's casting is the first part. Completely, it's in a, in a movie, unless it's a writer-director, you have no say. You're not involved. They're just the director's medium as far as I can tell, almost always. And um, unless it's one of those kind of big banner writers. Uh, TV seems to be quite the opposite. It seems to be the writers are in charge. Although the network, <laughs> I wrote the network a, still at that time. I, I wrote a I wrote a pilot and um, and it was a woman had to be at an age where she couldn't model anymore, but she had to have had an exceptionally uh, wonderful career as a model. And so I described her as being tall and willowy and and you know like Michelle Monaghan or something. And um, and so the the network calls and they're like, we're really interested in going out to Christina Ricci for this. And I was like, that's cool. She's in my pocket right now. Like um, I I don't see her. Like she's terrific. And they're like, well, we really love her. I was like, how nice for you. That's great. Great. I don't. I. I don't know how we stretch her to make her. So um, I. I found it somewhat somewhat frustrating because you have an idea in your head, and sometimes they have great ideas as to how to service that, and other yeah. times not so much. I had a pilot at CBS uh, several years ago, and you know I wrote these six characters, three couples, and. John Hamm came in, and I was like, well, that's the guy. That is the guy. That's so him. And Connie Britton came in, and I'm like, that's his wife. Oh, my God. That's them. Connie Britton, John Hamm. And we tested them, and the network was like, no. The, uh, you know, and the, I won't say what the comments were about them, but it, it, you know, in hindsight, of course... You know, they, they were not that interested that I had come up with these characters and I could tell them what reading of it and what person embodied that character. They wanted other people. And we, kept, we, we tried really, really hard, but the network decides in that case. If it's not HBO, Jim, Jim Gandolfini, who I knew from the theater scene in New, in New York, you know, he was, I believe he was Mitch with Alec Baldwin and um, Streetcar years ago. He doesn't get that part. You know what I mean? It's just that there's, there's a template they're trying to hit, and it's unfortunate most of the time. So now that we've talked about sort of bad studio and network decisions, can you talk about a good note or a useful note that you've gotten? Have you ever gotten one? <laughs> good question. Yeah, I've got to say, I, it's fun to talk about the bad ones because there's an awful lot of shocking ones, but I have actually, I've actually found there to be some very, very smart people who love movies in, in terms of what I've done. And I also have found people who I thought were just t- such petrifying jackasses <laughs> give notes that I went, that's just, oh my God, that's going to kill me. And in them have been the things that saved something. Mm-hmm. Um, 
there's nothing there. People are responding. They want to make something better, no matter how venal they might be in their personal life. (laughs) And there's something valuable there. And, you know, it's it's too easy of a cliche. There are a lot of the people who are doing stuff are really interesting and smart for my money. Yeah. I, I, I mean, for all the bad stories, there's there are a couple of good Really good in television, good, smart, passionate people who actually don't necessarily who started out with a love for narrative and writing and love for storytelling. And I have worked. I mean, the pilot I wrote this year for ABC was I had great executives, a great executive at ABC Studios, and a great one at ABC Network, and who loved the story and all their thoughts and suggestions were uh, helpful, and it didn't get made. So there you go. You, you, I, I, that doesn't necessarily line up, but, but no, I, I totally agree. Most of them have been uh, great. Even the thing about, like I was saying about the first pilot about the baby and taking care of the baby together. I mean, what they're trying to say because sometimes they just come off the cuff and give you a suggestion as to how to fix it, but they haven't thought about it as long as you have. But what they're missing is usually right on. Mm-hmm. And like in this case, they needed the, the adults to galvanize around the child and to bond over the child. So you have to realize again the spirit of the note. Um, and mostly the spirits of the, of the notes have been fantastic. They've always made it better. It's always been better for having gone through the. Note process so far for me good uh we we end by asking and we'll start with dan and come down the line uh what are you watching on television what are you enjoying what are you talking with your with your spouse well, missing about? it right now <laughs> that, that's why we're ending with you uh what are you talking about in the room with your coworkers, with your spouses anything like that um what's inspiring you you know, I'm watching the new bit-by-bit bit, uh, House of Cards, the new season of House of Cards, which I guess you could either binge-watch all at once, or which I kind of love that you can do that. So that's one thing that we've been watching. Um, I'm trying to think. There's not been that much because I have not been watching that much, but there's guilty pleasures mm-hmm. like Housewives that just make you feel better and talented. <laughs> and lucky. And ethical. And not petty, even when you are petty. Um, there are those things, but there's also the shows that are really fun. I'm watching Looking on HBO and Girls, and we're watching House of Cards. I have to say, a lot of them are, are cable shows, um, as much as I'm always like, why aren't people watching the network shows more? But, but uh, mo- you know, Modern Family is still great, and I'll enjoy, and, and there's lots of good shows. Liz? I loved Orange is the New Black. I love that. Um, I love the whole cast. I just thought it was fantastic, and it was great to see women who don't look like TV stars be stars. I mean, it really was a great show. I watch everything late. Like, I watched X-Files 10 years too late, and I'd go to work in the morning. I'd be like, you guys, that's a really great show. <laughs> so um, <laughs> so I am catching up on Breaking Bad right now. I have three episodes left, and I'm Wait, really pissed. Tell, tell them what you had to walk out Dude, on. I walked out right after Hank in the desert, man. I came here right after. I was like, oh, my God, right? I want to cry. Um, yeah, it does. I see. I deliberately didn't tell you. It's, it's I'm still catching up on Breaking Bad. Well, I thought. I, I mean, honestly, after Giancarlo Esposito in the yeah. No, I'm not gonna say anything. All I'm gonna say that. is nursing home. It doesn't tell you anything. Right. But that thing, I was like, Durr. but um, I, that's that's like the best show ever made. Um, and True Detective, which I also am missing right now. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> We're TiVoing it right now. Very good. Yeah. Uh, Clark, what are you watching? We uh, we definitely got into Orange Is the New Black. Um, uh, we like that. Bob's Burgers, I'm obsessed with. <laughs> Bob's Burgers may be the funniest show on television right now. Um, I watch some things that my daughter will watch with us, with like Downton Abbey. Um, Downton Abbey's great. Yeah, I like that. 
Um, I sometimes watch my own show with her because if my character's in jeopardy, she'll hug me. <laughs> and it's, they're getting fewer and fewer of the hugs. Um, I, just, I just watched the pilot of um, Orphan Black, yeah. which is very cool. Very, very cool. When I can, I catch, I catch scandal. It's very funny and, and scary at the same time. Um, and uh, like I said, I've really been digging True Detective. It's just something about it. The noir, I love the noir and the southern noir and the great acting those guys are doing. I love that. Good. Let's get out of here and watch it. Please give a round of applause to all of our panelists. Dan Pukatinsky, Liz Vassy, Clark Craig. Thanks to everyone here at Nerdist Industries and Meltdown Comics and to 826LA. Now leaving Nerdist.com.